Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Thank you for taking time to join us as we take time to learn from God's Word together. The message you are about to hear comes from the Cape Elizabeth Church of the Nazarene in Cape Elizabeth, Maine. Listen to more sermons or learn more about the church at our website, capenazarene.org. We are wrapping up our series in Ruth. It's a redemption story. A story that, of course, we'll hear in this final chapter that becomes our story as well. Just to recap just a little bit, uh, the last uh, couple weeks we've gone through the first chapters of Ruth. We remember that this whole time time period is taking place in the time of Judges. That's what it says in the opening verses. And Judges is a very violent, active book. It is a very dangerous book. And so, like, if you're the kind of person who, uh, when you're looking for entertainment on TV, if you find yourself attracted to the action movies and the violent movies, well, Judges is the book for you. You're going to find in there that there is plenty of action. There's, there's plenty of things happening. We did tell the story, uh, even by the third chapter, the story of the Judge Ehud, the left-handed judge who goes to the nation that had been oppressing them and kills the king, and that leads to their liberation as an example of it. I gave more graphic details last time. Uh, that country was Moab, uh, to the southeast of uh, Israel. That country was um, the one that had subjected them. And if we've learned anything from the conflicts even in our own day, is that where there has been conflict in the past, where there have been battles in the past, that conflict often lasts for generations. And so this story in Ruth is a breath of fresh air because in this story is none of the violence of of the book of Judges. In this story is continual hope. There is this dream, this vision of what it might look like as we live into and walk the path that God has for us. There is a hope indeed that there can be something more than just everything that surrounds us. And we find that embodied in the story of Ruth. And so we come to, uh, uh, so we came through that part of the story into chapter 2 where she meets Boaz while she's gleaning in the fields. And uh, Boaz there, Ruth catches Boaz's eye. He finds himself very interested in this Moabite woman who's come into their land. And he's interested in finding out more about her. And if you are the person who, on the other hand, when you're flipping through the TV channels and you like uh, a romance, if every time on a romance movie you see the couple's eye catch and they lean in closer, if you lean forward, (laughs) read Ruth chapter 3. We kind of skipped that one, but that's kind of the beginning of, okay, maybe we can do life together. What's going to happen between the two of us? And so we come now to Ruth chapter 4. And I'm going to start off by reading the the first seven verses. It'll give kind of some context to, to everything else that happens with the story of redemption. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 1 says, No sooner had Boaz gone up to the gate and sat down there than the next of kin, of whom Boaz had spoken, came passing by. So Boaz said, Well, come over, friend. Sit down here. And he went over and he sat down. Then Boaz took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Well, sit down here. And so they sat down. He said to the next of kin, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our kinsman Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. And if you will redeem it, redeem it. 
but if you will not tell me, so that I may know, for, for there's no one prior to you to redeem it, and I come after you. And so he said, well, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you acquire the field from the hand of Naomi, you are also acquiring Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead man, to maintain the dead man's name on his inheritance. At this, the next of kin said, well, I cannot redeem it for myself without damaging my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself. I cannot redeem it. It appears that when Elimelech left Israel, that uh, he had a piece of land that he had left behind, a, a piece of land that uh, perhaps uh, he, he left it for someone else to work, or maybe he left it fallow or just left it abandoned. We don't really know. But he has a piece of land, and this is going to become the tool by which Boaz is able to, to talk to the next of kin to, uh, to marry Ruth. It begins with him meeting at the gate. It's a very practical reason for meeting at the gate. You see, in their homes, in this little community, at this time, you know, the, the whole community is probably surrounded by walls or perhaps a fence. Keep out the wild animals, keep out opposing forces, let them sleep well at night. But in order to get to their flocks, in order to get to their fields, perhaps just to go and draw water, they all have to leave out the gate. And in a time when you can't text someone and be like, hey, I'm on my way, <laughs> when you can't call somebody and say, hey, I really need to talk with you, if you really wanted to meet someone, you could catch them on their way to work simply by waiting at the open gate. And so Boaz makes sure he's the first one up in the whole town. <laughs> makes sure he gets up and he gets to the front of the gate. He's going to catch all the elders walking by, and he's going to catch this next of kin, the one who might have rights to the land that Elimelech used to own. And we are reminded, uh, Boaz reminds us, that Naomi has returned from this land of Moab. And it turns out that this town of Bethlehem, that, that, that she is selling this land, or she is able to pass this land on. Now, I suspect that this might give them some kind of pause, some kind of worry, a little communal trepidation. There's someone who hasn't been here for a long time, from an opposing area, who's come back, has brought a relative from that opposing land, and now she's selling land? Someone from a foreign land selling land within our city? Like, that's kind of worrisome. I mean, wouldn't they want that land to stay local, to stay within their tribe? There's some worry there. We ourselves often will hear the phrase, buy local. Uh, that that is kind of pushing. If you go to a restaurant, a lot of times, all, they'll, they'll, if you go to a nice restaurant, a lot of times they'll say, oh, we get our bread from mainly grains, or we get our, we get our meat from this butcher here. We get, we get our food from different places that are local. We like that. We like the idea of taking care of our own, helping the individual store owner, finding local businesses, attending farmer's markets, helping those who are based here because we're reinvesting into the community, making sure that the money and the means to money is circulating among us rather than being hoarded in banks and other communities. In agrarian times, Naomi selling land raises all kinds of questions about foreign interest and influence. Is this going to stay within the tribal community? So, of course, there's a cultural way of making sure it stays within. That is, that making sure it passes to the next of kin. Making sure it stays within family lines. And there's all kinds of ways that can even make sure that widows are taken care of by making sure the land stays within the community. And, it, and I suspect... It becomes a part of Naomi's plan. 
knowing that they have this little bit of property, that she can uh, possibly take care of Ruth and she makes sure Ruth is tied to this. They don't have much land, I don't suspect. It doesn't really say. But if Ruth had to be gleaning in the fields, it certainly wasn't ready. They certainly didn't have someone working it while Limelech was gone. Otherwise, they could have just had them provide and, and pay their rents and take care of them. It's probably just a small, a small amount. And Naomi knows that anyone, if it's just the land, would love to take that. But Ruth has been good to her all the way back to Israel. Ruth has stayed by. We talked about her loving kindness and faithfulness, the chesed of Ruth that, that uh, models for us the love and faithfulness of God, that she has been with Naomi all the way through this, even when Naomi refused to speak. And so perhaps in this moment, Naomi's thinking, I, I, maybe I can take care of Ruth here and make sure she's tied in this. I can't provide a next of kin for her. Maybe someone I can make sure that she's taken care of. Although we do know that uh, Naomi's like already lamented that she can't provide, you know, this could be it. And the concern of the nearest kin is that uh, once he finds out Ruth is attached, is I don't know if I can divvy up this land enough among my, my, my own children. There's not enough there for me. Uh, I found myself, as I was thinking, reflecting on this story, realizing a, a very similar concern and story in my own history. Uh, years ago, I did my own kind of family history that got on the geneal genealogical fad and, and, and discovered that. And I found, of course, that some of the first Georges that came, came through Philadelphia. It was in 1708. And the one I can trace a direct line to the most, uh, he came with his family of like eight children and his wife on the boat. And just as they landed, all their hope, all their ambition, he had bought land in Pennsylvania from uh, William Tell. And he, they're excited. But that final day before his foot ever hits land, while the boat's in the dock, he passes away on the boat. And so uh, they show up. And now his oldest children, 18, 16, they end up working the land that he had. But his wife and all the other young children, there's nothing prepared for them on that land yet. They don't know what to do. But they went to Philadelphia because his brother had come a couple years earlier. And so the brother takes them in. And sure enough, in the next couple censuses, what looks to be his children are actually his deceased brother's children in that line, except for some of the children that were his own. He had taken them in. Indeed, it was a city of brotherly love. He, he literally took in his brother's children and said, I'm going to take care of you. Of course, uh, in the 18th century, monogamy is the thing. And so, so they don't have any children with, um, uh, with my ancestors, uh, with, uh, I don't know, it'd be like my ninth great grandmother. But, um, but, uh, but he took them in and welcomed them in. But I found out something interesting when he passed away and he wrote his will, despite the fact that those children lived with him for over a decade, despite the fact that they would have been a very close-knit family working that land together, the inheritance went to just his biological children, as would make sense. And then began the narrative, oh, so that's why our family started moving west. <laughs> and so, uh, but it was just a fascinating story. And I found myself saying, okay, I, I understand this next of kin saying, wait a minute, if there's not enough property here, I can't divvy that up. There, there's deals here. I, I've already made arrangements. I cannot take that step. And so Boaz says, I understand that issue, but I'm willing to take on that risk. And so he continues with verse 7. I'll share that with you. This was, now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming, exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one took off a sandal, gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. 
So when the next of kin said to Boaz, acquire it for yourself, he took off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I have acquired from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Limelech and all that belonged to Chilean and Milan. I've also acquired Ruth the Moabite, the wife of Milan, to be my wife, to maintain the dead man's name on his inheritance, in order that the name of the dead may not be cut off from his kindred and from the gate of his native place. Today you are witnesses. Then all the people who were at the gate along with the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord Make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel, and may you produce children in Ephrathah and bestow a name in Bethlehem. And through the children that the Lord will give you by this young woman, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. And so Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And when they came together, the Lord made her conceive, and she bore a son, and then the woman, women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without next of kin. May his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has borne him. Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her bosom, and became his nurse. The women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed. He became the father of Jesse, the father of David. And these are the descendants of Perez. Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron of Ram, of Abinadab, Abinadab of Nashon, Nashon of Salmon, Salmon of Boaz, Boaz of Obed, Obed of Jesse, Jesse of David. This is a story of redemption for Ruth and Naomi. Redemption from their situation, from their poverty, from their despair, from Naomi's bitterness. This is, this is the story of how they were in their worst place. They had moved, they had left all their family friends, they had developed a new land. But then when husband and sons passed away, to have to move, to hope, to, to, to think what happens next... And for them to say, I don't know what happens. I don't know where we go from here. And it seems like God is moving against them. God has acted against them. They are questioning. They are curious. They are wondering. Naomi, who before was known for being someone who was uh, optimistic, becomes someone who is incredibly, incredibly bitter. And to come and see that there is no hope for them when we believe that we are stuck in our situations, when we believe that we are stuck in our sin, when we believe that the situations that surround us are too difficult to overcome, to be able to see that there is a hope of redemption, that there is in the midst of that a God who sees us and is interested in walking with us and indeed redeeming us becomes indeed the theme of the story of Ruth. That despite the despair of the world around us that's often seen in a book like Judges or in the news of today, to see that God speaks in the midst of that and says there is another way and there's a new hope and there's a new outlook for you and your life. To redeem is a, is a strange word. We don't use the word much unless perhaps we are buying something. Uh, last week, Jen and I went out. We went out to a nice restaurant. It was her birthday, and we got to do that. And you guys were very generous. I got a gift card in a, uh, as Pastor Appreciation Month. I loved it because we went to the restaurant. We looked at the menu, and Jen said, oh, it's a little pricier than I thought. Should we go somewhere else? 
And I said, no, it's okay. I got a gift card we can redeem. And so that was, so, so, so it worked out perfectly. And uh, that word redeem, we usually think of, I am turning this over, I am paying for in order to receive that service or those goods that like in redeeming a gift card. We say, here's my card. It has a valuation. I would like to purchase something of comparable value and make it my own. To redeem something is often to purchase it. We use this word redemption and redeeming in theological conversation as well. Historically, the church did use the word redemption as a word for purchase. It is a part of the theological history of the church, as in purchase from the guilt of sin, or purchase from punishment, or purchase from enslavement to sin. It is one of the metaphors used in theological discourse and even in scripture, although I don't think it's the best one. It is one that we definitely hear a lot. It sneaks into some of our hymns as well. To be redeemed has that kind of connotation, but I think in the book of Ruth, it has another connotation as well. For in the book of Ruth, even though there is a transaction happening here in chapter 4, Boaz's entire purpose for meeting at the gate and meeting the, uh, the, the, the closest kin and meeting all the elders has nothing to do with the land. The land is a byproduct of marrying Ruth. He is absolutely interested in Ruth. The land just comes with. In fact, uh, according to the next of kin, Ruth is a detriment to the land. He wants nothing to do with that. For Boaz to redeem Ruth, to, to become her kinsman redeemer, is to welcome her into a family, is to adopt her into God's plan and God's people. There is no greater joy than the feeling of belonging, of knowing that you're a part of something and you're a part of a whole bunch of someones. Redemption is far more than purchase. It is liberation. God sets us free. It sets us free from whatever is happening, but it's also belonging. You are a child of God. As we sang in our first song, I am a child of God. That wherever there may have been rejection in the past, wherever there may have been hurtful abandonment in the past, to come to a place where we recognize God has said to us, you are my child. That God will provide that God will rescue, that God will redeem and say to us, you are my child and you belong. I love and I care for you. The story of Boaz is a reflection of the faithfulness of our Lord. Boaz who loves and courts and seeks after Ruth in order to bring her into the family. And the Lord does the same for us and he does not stop. One of uh, A book I really enjoyed by the name, by, by a guy by the name of Eugene Peterson. You probably know that name as, as a guy who wrote The Message, uh, uh, the book, uh, book of the Bible, but he's written a bunch of other great books as well. And one, of the, one book he wrote was on the Song of Songs called Five Smooth Stones. And uh, he tells in this story, he says, there's a time in the year where this book, the Song of Songs, is read again and again in the Jewish faith. In Israel. And the Song of Songs, of course, is that romantic book in the Bible. It is, it is the one that, that is talking about the great love that one has for another. And he says there's a time in, 
in the history where they read that again and again. Just as we, coming up on Advent here in just another month, we know the scriptures we're going to read. We're going to hear about John the Baptist. We're going to hear about, uh, uh, we're going to hear about the anticipation of the uh, birth of Jesus Christ. This is something that we know. This holiday, we, we're going to read that again and again. Eugene Peterson said, Song of Songs is a book that is read again and again during the Passover, during the celebration that they have that God has saved them and liberated them from Egypt, set them on pace to a new future and a new hope, that God would redeem them from their enslavement to the powers around them and give them new hope. They would read the Song of Songs and find in there indeed that God's act of liberation in our life is out of a strong sense of love for his creation. The saving work of our God is an act of love for those who want to be a part of his family. And I think this love and this adoption language is, of course, a far stronger and more helpful biblical metaphor than that of paying a price. But it does show us that this idea of redemption in the story of Boaz is indeed one of bringing into the fold And our God shows his unwavering faithfulness in the face of those who might take advantage of you, as in Egypt, or those who would reject you, as in the unnamed kinsmen here in Ruth. To be claimed by God is to be known and named by him. It is our Lord's promise that he will be our God and we will be his people. That phrase, that promise that's echoed again and again from the prophets, I will be your God and you will be my people, is the exact same words Ruth had used to Naomi in chapter 1. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. This language of adoption is at beginning and end for the book of Ruth. And, and this idea that God knows us and knows our name, this particularity of, of God's great love is not just a sweeping thing of, okay, I get to be a part of it like everyone else. He knows us specifically. In, in the book of Ruth, we knew who the sons of Elimelech were. It told us at the very beginning, Milan and Chilean, but it did not tell us who the husband of Ruth was. It wasn't until this moment, at the end of chapter 4, as she's brought into the family of Boaz, that we realize, oh, it was Milan who is the husband of Ruth. We're told that for the first time. In the grace of our God, your name is remembered. Your name is known. An illustration used in in, in, uh, other areas of Scripture. Your name is written in the book of life. You are personally known and remembered by our Lord. Your redemption is not coincidental. It is intentional. He loves you specifically. And so he receives the blessing of the people, the blessing of the elders who have said, yes, you can go ahead and do this. And they say the most curious thing to him. They say, may the Lord make the woman who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah. Remember the story of Rachel and Leah, Jacob, who will become known as Israel, he goes to find a wife. And of course, he gets kind of tricked and he ends up marrying, he ends up getting two. And, uh, uh, and uh, because that's what they did back then. And out of those two became the children who become known as the patriarchs of the 12 tribes of Israel. But the whole reason he looked for a wife in Genesis chapter 28, 
is because his father said to him, if you don't go elsewhere to find a wife, you're going to get married to someone here, someone who's a Canaanite. And we can't have that happen. And the whole story of Rachel and Leah, it's, it's preceded by the very impulse of you can't marry an outsider. Jacob's marriage to Rachel and Leah is specifically to avoid any marriage outside of the Hebrew people. Something that at times throughout the scriptures we'll find forbidden. But here, in the book of Ruth, we have the blessing given to Ruth the Moabite. And Boaz doesn't hide who she is. He doesn't hide where she comes from. In fact, the phrase the Moabite shows up after Ruth so often in this book, you would think Moabite was her last name and the was her middle name. I mean, that's, just, that's just how she's called. In this story, we find indeed the outsider has a place in the grace of God's people. There is room enough for blessing among those who have been on the outside, among those whom we might think aren't deserving, or among those whom we doubt if God's grace will go there. Yeah, we long, I long for the day of peace where there's conflict. I long for the day in our world today when Palestinians and Jews might find themselves intermarrying and blessing. We find this very Old Testament passage of Scripture to be a breath of fresh air in the midst of an area of Scripture known for its exclusiveness. Yet in this moment, we are reminded what might happen if we allowed the grace of God to work in places where we might be surprised. In looking at this story, let us be amazed at what God might do in others and in other groups. This book reminds us that there are no outsiders, not even in the Old Testament way of thinking. This book taking place in the midst of the judges, the most violent and violent for the sake of self-preservation, is realizing that preserving who we are as a people of God has far less to do with the customs we've adopted and more about living in the grace of God. Also, let us be amazed at how God is willing to meet us where we are, that He is constantly wooing us, nudging us, saying, I have a plan, I have a purpose for you. That our God says, you don't have to bring much to the table. You don't have to bring anything to the table. I love and I care for you, and you can be a child of God. That we can say, yeah, I want to be a part of the family of God. We can accept his plan and purpose. We can be redeemed. The story of Ruth wraps up the story of talking about King David. King David. If there's any doubt at all about how inclusive Ruth has just become for the people of God, look at who names the children. She doesn't name the children. Her child doesn't get a good Moabite name. <laughs> uh, her husband doesn't name the children. It says the women around the village named their child Obed. They are without a doubt 100% a part of the people now. And Obed will go on to give birth to Jesse and then King David. King David, known as the greatest embodiment of the might and the identity of Israel. He's going to be known as a person who seeks after God's own heart. He's going to write most of our psalms. His name is going to be repeated again and again throughout the scriptures. Yet his identity as, as the nation of Israel is an identity that includes someone who came in as a neighbor. This one, King David, is what a quarter, eighth Moabite? 
He is without a doubt one who was outside. That we find that what it means to be the people of God is to be open to where God is moving around us. Jesus, we will hear, is descended from the line of King David, is for us our Messiah, is indeed our Savior, and He is for us the embodiment of God, the very God who loves us and is interested in us. The embodiment of the God who is with us in times of famine, in times of mourning, and in times of transition. Jesus is the embodiment of the very God who wants to redeem us. And so we find in this story, both in Ruth and Boaz, pictures of faithfulness, pictures of love, and pictures of grace. Finding indeed that we can see that they are showing what it is like to believe and to know that there is a God who is with us along the way. The Holy Spirit of our Father and of Jesus, His Son, is working in us now to liberate, to adopt. And this story of redemption is indeed our story and our hope. And we can trust and believe that He has opened up His arms and says, you get to be a part of the family. I have a plan and a purpose for you in the midst of everything that happens today. Let's pray, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your love. I thank you for your grace. I thank you that we can find in stories like this examples and expressions of faithfulness, examples and expressions of, of what it means to seek after and to be loved and to be a part of something so much more than what we've been through. And Lord, I thank you for that grace that you have poured out your spirit onto our lives and you have said you are so much more than what you've been through. And you are now a part of the family of God. And so, Heavenly Father, we pray that that comfort and that peace would indeed be ours. We pray, Heavenly Father, that, that your spirit would speak to our spirit and indeed assure us that we are children of God. Help us to know, Lord, that uh, you are with us. And Heavenly Father, it is my prayer that that hope, that that grace that we receive would indeed be a catalyst for us to find ways in which we can be as faithful as Ruth was to Naomi and Boaz to Ruth and find that your grace can continue to multiply even in a world that seems to uh, 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 miss it or fall short that our hope and our story is found in all the myriads of places in which you are breaking in. Thank you again for this time. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this sermon podcast. We hope that the message has inspired you to draw closer to God each day. May God bless you as you serve Him today.